Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where we're continuing our study in this book. Tonight we're looking at chapters 12, 13, and 14, which is a large chunk to bite off, and we'll spend most of our time in chapters 12 and 13, but we'll highlight one or two things in chapter 14. And if you've been noticing, we have been dividing Revelation into these segments that really follow the structure of the book in these repeated visions that the Apostle John has. You might call them cycles. And we want to read, this one is a complete one, chapters 12 through 14. And so let us hear God's Word, starting with chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, And you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Revelation is a very difficult book. It's the only book of the Bible that John Calvin didn't write a commentary on. Interesting. And there are many different interpretations of it. The pastors in our church and most of the pastors in the PCA interpret the book and these visions that are cycles of of repeated overviews of the church age view them as such, as applying to the entire age between the first and second coming of Christ. They're cycles in this sense, and we've already seen two of them. We've seen the seals and the trumpets, and here we have symbolic histories in our cycle. It's interesting that some interpreters take the book of Revelation as being completely fulfilled in the time of the early church. And then others take the book applying to a very specific end time right before Jesus Christ returns. And we on our staff view it as applying to that whole church age, certainly with initial fulfillments in the early church and a final fulfillment before the coming of Christ, but also with application to this entire age. And so that's the interpretive grid in which we're looking at the book. And as you go through these repeated visions in the middle part of the book in which we're in, it's interesting that every vision, every cycle concludes with the second coming of Christ. And as we move through the cycles, what happens is that you see an enlargement of the details and description of the return of Christ. So you have the return of Christ described in the book multiple times. It's hard to read these descriptions of the return of Christ and not see this idea that we're being given repeated visions of the same time period. And also, if you know something about literature and the literature of the Bible, you know that the type of literature that this part of the book of Revelation is, after the letters to the seven churches at the beginning, that the literature is called apocalyptic. It's, it's a certain genre, a type of literature that involves these fantastic visions and images. You know, it's the same type of literature that you find in the second half of the book of Daniel and in parts of Ezekiel. And these fantastic images are symbolic. And the other thing we have to remember is the order for interpreting prophecy is this. Prophecy is given, and then finally the fulfillment occurs, and only when the fulfillment occurs do we know the correct interpretation. We want to put it another way. We want to see prophecy and then interpretation, and so we know what the fulfillment will be. So it's humbling for all of us to realize that we don't have the final answer for all the details of the book of Revelation, but we seek by God's help to understand it. 
And as we see these really terrifying images tonight, I want us to remember that we are not to be frightened and terrified by these things. We are to be sobered by the reality that is portrayed in this spiritual warfare that the saints are involved with, and we're to be awakened to the serious nature of, in a sense, the battle in which we are engaged in this present world. We are the church militant. We are not yet the church triumphant. And these visions we see again and again as we look at the text are to encourage God's people to persevere in trial, in tribulation, in persecution, in the attacks of Satan in this world, and remember that we have a great and coming King, Jesus Christ, and we can rest fully in Him. And so in chapter 12, we want to look at the key figures in this chapter, and we're going to do that for chapter 13 as well, if we have time. And we want to look here at the woman, the dragon, and the child here. And let's take these three then. The woman, first of all, there's, we see in verse 1, there's a great sign that appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This, I believe, is symbolic of the Old Testament people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you might say, well, is she Mary, the mother of Jesus herself? Mary would have been part of that Old Testament people of God, but the focus here is not on Mary as a historical person herself. And the Old Testament people of God give birth, in verse 5, to the male child. And there's really, in a sense, the briefest summary, you might say, of the life of Christ in verse 5. So she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There's the key that we know who it is. That's the Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Doesn't mention anything about the life of Christ. Doesn't mention anything about the cross of Christ. He's caught up. That's the ascension of Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness for 1,260 days. Why that many days exactly? What does that mean? Well, we're going to find throughout these chapters this reference to essentially three and a half years. It's given one time in terms of days here. It's given in the phrase for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. And it's also given in the form of 42 months. So it's given in different ways using different numbers And it's symbolic, I believe, of the church age and what is happening during that church age. And we see in verses 13 that the woman, after the birth of Christ, that the dragon is enraged at the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, verse 14, and she flees into the wilderness. She flies into the wilderness where she is nourished for a time. And there's the time and a time and half and half a time. And further on, we find in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So we have not only 
the woman representing the Old Testament people of God, but we have the woman and her offspring now in the wilderness, clearly representing the New Testament people of God as well. And they're further specified who they are at the end of verse 17. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So that's a brief statement about who Christians are. They follow Jesus Christ. They keep his commandments. They hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The second key figure of chapter 12 is the dragon. This terrible being of immense uh, and evil spiritual power. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, seven crowns, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. It's possible that verse 4, about the seven stars of heaven being cast to the earth, it's possible that that alludes to or refers to Satan's initial fall from heaven before he tempted Adam and Eve. It's possible, or it may just mean that Satan is the disruptor of the created order of God in in, um, these stars being cast down. Some take them as as these are, this, this third of the stars are the angels who fell with Satan and who are demons now. The fact that he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it reminds us of Satan's working through King Herod at the time of the birth of Christ and Herod seeking to destroy this child, but he was unable to do so. He was kept by God. But these verses give us a window into the heavenly reality that stands behind the spiritual warfare in our age. In verse 7, we see this description of war, war arising. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This is a description of the, the spiritual warfare that was going on as Christ in his life and death and resurrection, conquered Satan. Michael is introduced to us in the Old Testimony, this angelic prince or this angel who was uh, spoken of in Daniel chapter 10, who was involved in spiritual warfare as Daniel prayed. In a sense, we're given here a glimpse into the spiritual reality going on behind the believer's experience on earth and behind what Christ did. And in verses 9 and 10, we find that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, there's debate. Is this the initial fall from heaven that Satan experienced? I take the view that it's not his initial fall, that this is the destruction of Satan's work through the cross and resurrection of Christ. Because in verse 10, we hear this key declaration, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom 
of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That did not happen before Christ's victory on the cross. Notice devil is referred to here. The word devil means slanderer. Remember in Genesis 3, the very first work of Satan in deceiving Eve is he slandered God's character by bringing into doubt whether God is really good. And then the word Satan is used as well, which means accuser. And there's this description of one of Satan's primary works against believers. He is the accuser of our brother's And he was thrown down, it says. Well, that's Satan. And then there is this child. In chapter 14, we see him described as the Son of Man. And clearly, this is Jesus the Christ. Verse 5, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, reflecting on Psalm 2, the Christ, the Lord. Stop and think about what is being described here when we see this symbolic description of the victory of Christ over the dragon. It's not describing Satan's original fall, but it's describing what Jesus accomplished in the bringing of the kingdom of God, in the initiating the kingdom of God on this earth. And we must understand something of the Old Testament background to see the ideas that are here in chapter 12 about Satan being decisively defeated, Satan the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren, and him being defeated. In various points in the Old Testament, we see Satan's attempt to accuse God's people before God's throne. In Job chapter 1, we see it where Satan appears before God. And there's this sense that is repeated in the Old Testament that Satan somehow has access to the throne of God. And in Job 1, Satan accuses Job of worshiping God only because Job was preserved by God and had a a relatively good life that God had given him. And so Satan accuses God of favoritism. And we see that picture in Job 1. But there's a similar picture in Zechariah chapter 3, where again, Satan is somehow standing in the throne room of the heavenly throne room of God, and he's accusing Joshua, the high priest. And that description there has Joshua, the high priest, clothed clothed in filthy garments. And, And to Satan's accusation, the Lord rebukes Satan and says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? We can look at some other verses in the Old Testament that have these similar implications that, and it it comes down to this, that believers in the Old Testament period were saved by grace through faith and justified through the work of Christ, although that work was not yet accomplished. It anticipated, their salvation anticipated the work of Christ, but in some sense, it seemed that Satan had some degree of legal standing or legal ground before God, as it were, to accuse. And of course, his efforts were not ultimately effective. But the problem was, 
what the solution was to Satan's accusation to God's people was not clear to God's people at that time. Yes, it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament ceremonial law, but Satan was accusing and saying God's justice demands punishment, demands judgment. And so finally here, we see that God's decisive answer comes by the work of Christ. And in a sense, there is no longer any place for Satan and his angels in heaven. And that goes right along with Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, where where Christ forgives all our trespasses and cancels the record of debt against us, nailing it to the cross. And then Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. And so Romans eight thirty three, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So in this church age, Satan is very active even though he's been cast down to earth. And we make two points of application from chapter 12. Beware of Satan's accusations and his deceptions. First, his accusations. Satan's accusations are now completely illegitimate for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we have the accuser of the brethren cast down. It shows that one of Satan's fundamental methods of attack for believers is to bring our sin before us and seek to condemn us with it and accuse us and to seek to drive a wedge between us and fellowship with our God, to shoot his fiery darts into our hearts and say, in a sense, you can't come before God. You should not really pray. You can't lift your heart to the Lord, and you don't have fellowship with God. Are you even a believer with what you've done? You have no right. Look at your sin. And so Satan casts our sin before us and reminds us of our sin. And to the degree that Satan is successful, the believer has a temptation to fall either into despair or to denial about his or her sin to fall into despair and not standing in the gospel in that moment or that period of time when those accusations hit us. Or the other extreme is to treat our sin lightly and to minimize or deny that really it's even sin. And again, to some degree, remove us from active living fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Satan is a master at this. Notice in verse 11, when it talks about the believer's spiritual warfare, it says, and they have conquered him, that's the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Notice the twofold armory so for, or uh, so-called of the saints. One is, They have overcome, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. And so we persevere in faith before God, standing in Jesus Christ, standing in the blood of the Lamb, believing the gospel. We need to be remembering the gospel when Satan accuses us. We think of the words of that hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair 
And Satan reminds us of our sin. I forget the exact words. Upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. We look upward to Jesus Christ when Satan tempts us to despair. And also, there's that other aspect, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's speaking of persevering in faith as we live in the world, before the world. Whatever the cost might be, they love not their lives even unto death. This will come out more in later chapters to come. And so we persevere in faith by holding to Jesus Christ. And then we move to chapter 13. We've seen the dragon, we've seen the woman, and we've seen a glimpse of what Christ has done. We move into chapter 13, and we want to see the beast and the second beast. So I want to read verses 1 through 10 and talk about the first beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opens its, its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Well, here's the first key figure in chapter 13, this beast, this terrifying-looking beast who, if you look at it, he's really a combination of all the beasts of Daniel 7. And what we'll see is that the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast are really presented, as we might say, a counterfeit trinity. Uh, The dragon representing the father, the first beast probably representing the son, and the second beast representing the Holy Spirit. What is this first beast? Notice what it's described about him. He has great power. He has these ten horns which represent power, seven heads with ten diadems on its horn, their crowns, its blasphemous names, and these various description of it, like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, and with great power given by the dragon. 
In verse 3 is illuminating. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And so it's a combination of the beasts of Daniel 7, and it's also a counterfeit Messiah. The true Messiah truly died and rose again. The counterfeit Messiah has what appeared to have been a mortal wound and was healed, and the whole world marveled. Well, there are different ideas for what this beast is throughout history in interpreting this. And my interpretation, which is not original with me at all, was this is really the incarnation of satanic power on earth in various forms throughout the church age, especially in demonic persecuting power. Often it's persecuting government or state power in the history of the church, but it can be cultural power as well, and often in the form of false religion allied with state power. And it might be centered in an individual, or it might be a whole government or a false religion. And there have been many expressions, I believe, of this first beast throughout the history of the church. And we think of how the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.18, many antichrists have come. So already at the time of the early church, many antichrists have already come. We think of Rome being one expression. And later in the book of Revelation, it identifies these seven heads with seven hills. So it's possible that the initial fulfillment of this was the ungodly state of Rome. And we think of the persecutions under Nero or Domitian. And um, we also think about the final expression of the beast in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in the man of lawlessness, which will occur before the return of Christ. Yet throughout the church age, the church has regularly faced the beast. Notice especially the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so the idea here in this beast is that at the end of chapter 12, you have the dragon in this vivid picture of standing on the sand of the sea. And then chapter 13 opens with the beast rising out of the sea. Often in the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos and evil. And so you have this beast rising out of the sea by the power of Satan, the dragon. And you have this idea of of power with the the ten horns and the ten crowns. And the number seven may also indicate the number completion, but many people have tried to see how the kings, the emperors of Rome, how there were seven from when the time that John wrote to the end of um, the Roman Empire. And if you take the interpretation that I'm holding before you, we know that government is instituted by God for our good, for the well-being of mankind, but that so often it has been so deeply corrupted that it has become satanic, and it becomes the beast. It sets itself up as God. It requires worship. You see that happening in different parts of the world, even in our time. We think of Rome as an initial fulfillment of this with its emperor worship and the requirement that Christians often found themselves in 
to confess Caesar as Lord and to bow before him in order to function in society. And some of them were put to death, we know, in the persecutions. Or we think of fulfillments of this in times of like the French Revolution, which was an atheistic government, and Christians suffered under that. They actually tried to stamp out Christianity. Or we think of all the Marxist, uh, communist, totalitarian governments in the Soviet Union and China and North Korea, Cuba. And in, in many of those, in most of those, eventually the state becomes so supreme that there's this godlike requirement that you really worship the state. But even in the West, in the secular governments of the West, it's possible for to governments to become like God. And we see that more and more in our day with the idea that government takes care of us. Government provides for us. And it does, it's not overtly stated that we're to worship government, but the idea really becomes trust the government for your life. Vern Poitras, Dr. Vern Poitras, in his commentary on Revelation, talks about how the counterfeit nature of the beach, of the beast, coincides with Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, and just some of the things that are described here. And he talks about how the beast is the image of the dragon, just as Christ is the image of the Father. Or the beast has ten crowns, and later on we're going to find that Christ has many crowns. And the beast has blasphemous names written on, on him, and Christ has worthy names. The beast has this fatal wound that I referred to, it's a counterfeit of the resurrection. The beast is worshipped and followed in verses 3 and 4 by the whole earth, except for those who are in the Lamb's book of life, just as Christ is to be worshipped over the entire earth. And we see that the beast makes war, but in righteousness, chapter 19, Christ judges and makes war. And there are more. But those are just a sampling of how the beast, the Antichrist, is this counterfeit Christ. Well, what are the implications of this first beast? And really, they apply to the second beast as well, as we'll see. This beast, the spirit of Antichrist, empowered by Satan, is always seeking to deceive the world and believers as well, to draw us into false worship to ensnare the world deeper into the worship of Satan himself, even if it's through the state or through false religion or through a, dis, uh, a seductive, charismatic person or by the elements of culture and society that press upon us, all of those may very well be incarnations of the beast, and often they're linked together in various forms. And believers who resist, who stay true to Jesus Christ, will be persecuted, whether it's the mild kind of persecution that you and I might experience in our day in the West. Notice verse 7. It's really key here. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Thousands, tens of thousands, millions of believers throughout the age of the church have been put to death, more in the 20th century than in any other century before. It's not like it's getting better. But 
That's a reference to being allowed to temporarily conquer the saints because ultimately the saints live victorious in Jesus Christ, and not even death can separate us from His love. From His love. But notice, even in describing the beast's victory, language of what we would call the divine passive is used. Verse 7, it was allowed. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, and it was allowed to exercise authority. In other words, even if the beast's power and strength were from Satan, and so you could say it was given to him from Satan, ultimately, this is a reference to God allowed this. God is the ultimate power and authority. And Jesus could say to Pilate in John 19, verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from my Father. Even at the most wicked moment when Jesus was being condemned to death, Jesus knew that it was allowed by the Father and given by Him. And so believers may trust and abide in God no matter what befalls, even if they are allowed to be conquered by the beast. And so verse 10 says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It should not surprise us. It certainly would be very difficult to go through something like that. One of the Scottish covenanters, when his son was killed by persecuting authorities before him, before his very eyes, simply declared, it is the Lord. May God give us grace to respond that way. And then there is the second beast we want to look at in verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast, in its presence, and makes the earth and its its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. We have this second beast. Later in the book of Revelation, he'll be called the false prophet. He's a counterfeit Holy Spirit. He is a spokesman for the first beast. He is the propagandist for the first beast. Who is this? I think we'll only know the final fulfillment when we see it, when we're alive. But there are certainly lesser fulfillments of it throughout the age of the church. Again, in the first century, 
there were really priests of the emperor cult who set forth the propaganda for Caesar is Lord and persecuted the church. They propagandized for the idol, whatever that idol might be. And really, the history of false religions is a history of false signs and wonders. You look at verses 13 and 14. It performs great signs, even making fire come down. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast deceives those who dwell on earth. Some of you know Wes Bookemer, who's gone to glory, and he describes witch doctors in Africa who could, who could put their hand into a boiling pot of oil and pull something out, and their hand would not even be slightly red from doing that. And he saw it with his own eyes. False signs and wonders that Satan works. Of course, in today, in our secular, humanistic, atheistic, materialistic world, maybe those false signs are in the realm of claims about technology and science answering all the questions of life. And notice in verse 15 that the second beast coerces with violence. The end of that verse, those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, and it demands allegiance, verses 16 and 17, to be marked on the forehead on the right hand, so that no one can buy or sell without the mark. Now, we could take a lot of time to talk about this mark. It could be a, a, what's called a gematria, which, which is a way to look at numbers and have them add up to letters and so forth. It could be numerology, an example of that. I don't think it actually is any of those things, although many people in history have had their names added up to 666, if you know anything about that. More likely, I think, is that the hand being marked means that someone's activities and work, like in the first century being part of the trade guild, were limited by whether or not they confessed Caesar as Lord. And likewise, on their head, their heart, and their thoughts, their worship was required to be coerced in a certain way as well. It's probably not a literal mark because again and again, we find that Scripture, the saints, are marked as well. In the book of Revelation, we find that believers are marked, and there's never been an actual physical marking on be believers that is required to be done. So I'm not trying to unravel that all for us in the last two minutes here. But again, very serious persecution, very much power that God allows the first beast and the second beast to have. And I don't think we should think of it as simply taking place only at the very end time. This happens. There are many believers in the world today that feel intently the power of the first beast and of the false prophets. And then we come to chapter 14. I don't have time to read it all, but here we see the 144,000 who had the name of the Lamb and of His Father's name written on their foreheads. And verse 2, we hear a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. 
No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Is this a special privileged group? Some religions think that. I believe that Revelation is setting them forth as symbolic for believers of all time. And this is really, chapter 14 describes and leads into the return of Christ again. And there's a call in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. So there's that call for endurance. And then in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And it goes on to describe the judgment and the reaping of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is written to encourage us. J.I. Packer writes that he feels that the main message of the book of Revelation is already given in the letters, the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, and the rest of the book is an elaboration of the promises given in those letters to the churches of Asia Minor, but also to the churches of all time, an elaboration of the gracious promises that are given by God to those who overcome. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word, which fills us with a sober mindfulness of your calling in our lives. In a day and in an age when there is so much comfort and leisure, and we feel safe in different ways, yet at the same time, there's an unraveling of much that has been solid for generations, and we feel anxiety and dread. Lord, we thank you that, in a sense, it has always been that way for your people in this time, that you have promised to be with us, that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and hell, and that one day he is coming back, and we look forward to that day, O Lord. Help us to stand in the victory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.